Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Samantha, and today I am here with my lovely colleagues, Makisha Hooper and Barbara Grimmer. And I am so excited to spend time talking today about motherhood and motherhood in our work and in our movement, what that looks like. And so to start us off, I do want to give a brief trigger warning. Today, we will be talking in general about intimate partner violence, maybe some conversations about gender and violence against women and girls. So just wanted to reiterate, as always, please take care of yourself, step away if you need to, come back when you're ready. Makisha and Barbara, thanks so much for being here today. Happy to be here. (laughs) I think this is going to be a really fun episode. Both Makisha and Barbara have been on our podcast before. If you've missed their episodes, please go back and listen. They're always great conversation. These two have a wealth of knowledge. Makisha was most recently on our Honoring Texas Victims episode this season. And then Barbara was on our Reflecting on the Child Welfare and Domestic Violence Advocacy Partnership episode, I think in season two, sometime in 2021. So you might have to scroll back a little bit. So Barbara, it's great to have you back. It's been a little while, so definitely time. So I'm going to start us off today with a little bit of an icebreaker. In the spirit of motherhood, in the spirit of parenting, as we all know, it comes with some highs and lows and some moments that are not our shiniest, brightest moments. So first, I want to talk about an embarrassing or humbling parenting moment. So I'll pass it over to y'all. I am happy to start. This is Barbara. So we have a two-year-old. He's about two years and three or four months. And for over a year now, he's been going to an in-home daycare and they call her Nani. So her name is Nani. And it's a word that he can say and he says often. And so, you know, we call ourselves his weekend parents because, I mean, she's raising our kid. But on the weekend, you know, we'll spend time with him. We'll do fun activities. And my husband does bedtime. And so at bedtime on Sunday night, you know, he likes to do a wrap up with our son Jimbo. And he'll say, you know, we had such a great weekend with you. We did this activity. We did this activity. You're such a great kid. We're so happy to have you. And Jimbo will look lovingly into his eyes and say, Nani, Nani. And he does this every single time that we're telling him how much we love him, how much fun we've had with him, what a great day it's been. Like just yesterday, we were taking a walk and he likes taking walks with us in the evening. And so we were saying, it's such a beautiful night and we're so happy to be walking with you. And he looks at us and he goes, Nani. And now we think he does this on purpose because of our reaction, but it still works every time. So it just reminds us that like, you know, we're okay. (laughs) You've got some competition though. Right. Right. (laughs) You can't rely on the fact that you're in the number one spot. I feel that and I'm in deep competition mode with all sets of grandparents. (laughs) To be fair, they have chocolate and chips and sprinkles on their side. So it's an easy win for my my toddler. (laughs) But I feel that. I think he's just, you know, talking about what's next. So 
It's just like that's a sweet way of looking great. at it. <laughs> We've had a wonderful time together. Tomorrow, Nani's gonna be around, right? <laughs> that's what we tell ourselves too. <laughs> Well, I have a 17-year-old and a 5-year-old, so I have nearly two decades of humbling experiences to draw from. I will, like I always think about one of my early ones with my oldest Eleanor and it was like right when Eleanor was learning to walk, we were like really like fostering independence and trying to help them like get acclimated to like kind of navigating the world and also like right around the time the new Whole Foods opened downtown and you park on one level and you take an escalator up to like the next level to shop and at the top of that level there's like a dining area so there's kind of a gallery of people looking down on the escalator which is really important part of the story. (laughs) I'm like nervous on my own getting on an escalator. Like I have to stop and think about it. And my husband had taken Eleanor a few times. I was like really helping Eleanor like get confident, like getting on the escalator and just stepping onto it. And so I was like, I'm going to try it, even though like this is a new walker and I'm like nervous myself with like 30 years of experience of walking. (laughs) So we were like at the bottom and I was like, okay, we're going to step on. And I was kind of waiting for Eleanor to step on. I thought they were going to. So I stepped on the escalator. Eleanor did not. So (laughs) like the next few minutes, like I'm like running to the top, coming back down because this was like, an up escalator and then like kind of a down like part escalator and while I'm coming back down Eleanor just by themselves like hops on the up escalator and it's riding up and of course like everyone dining at the top sees like my frantic like up and down like panic and Eleanor just like calmly going up the escalator on their oh own. my gosh and how old were they at the time they were around like 18 months to two years it was somewhere oh my like, gosh <laughs> that's like sitcom worthy like, yes can't get to them there's no yes. possible way <laughs> I have learned that like those kinds of things where you're like watching a sitcom and you're like that would never happen in real life 100 percent happens in parenting. You will experience the moments of just, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like how and why is this happening? Like, absolutely. Oh my gosh. And I'm sure in the moment, like I know for a fact that I would be so hot and I would be so sweaty and I would be so stressed (laughs) and trying to like literally run circles (laughs) trying to get my kid but I'm sure like 15 years time has passed lets you kind of look back and laugh a little (laughs) I don't know do you still get on the escalator when you have your kids (laughs) right you have a strict no escalator rule and does it apply to elevators as well (laughs) 
Because that might be scarier. One of those ones where, like, the funny thing was just like how calmly Eleanor was like on the escalator. (laughs) Well, you panic, of course, because that's always how it happens. They're fine. They don't realize like the risk, and they're just kind of floating through life. And we're the ones that are like, "Oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose you. (laughs) You're gonna be at a different level of the store than me." Oh my gosh, that is hilarious. I have a four-year-old and I am currently pretty pregnant. (laughs) So I'm going to draw from a more recent humbling, very, very humbling experience. (laughs) I love being active with my daughter and we go to the park and I want to play with her. Like I'm on the jungle gym with her or I'm chasing her and we're running and we're doing things. And we have like a little community neighborhood playground park situation pretty close to our house so it's not out of the norm for us to just walk there together and you know play and then walk back for Christmas so several months ago she got a scooter for Christmas and she's thrilled she's thrilled she loves it it's a hoot But she doesn't want to ride the scooter so much as like walk next to the scooter and drag the scooter because that's fun. But being on the scooter itself as it's intended is not as much fun. So we definitely talked before we left the house and I was like, listen, if we take the scooter, you got to have to ride it the whole way because mommy can't carry it right now. She super promised that that's what was going to happen. It isn't what happened though. (laughs) And so we get about halfway and I was very quickly humbled with how impacted my mobility has become (laughs) with my pregnancy. And I think that was the first moment where I was like, oh, I probably need to make some adjustments here (laughs) to how I'm playing with her because she agreed to ride on it, but I had to like push her the whole way. So I'm hunched over, like pushing her on this scooter for like the whole time that we're walking to the park. And then of course we get to the park and she wants to run and play. And she's like, mommy, why aren't you chasing me? I'm like, mommy's done. (laughs) I am done. And I don't think I've been so quickly humbled by my lack of dexterity in my life because being pregnant is one thing and then being pregnant with a toddler is like a whole different ball game and so I think I reached the point that very specific day that very specific moment I reached a a point where I was like okay this is my limit (laughs) this is my limit here And I'm going to need to adjust. And so now we drive to the park and we don't bring a scooter. And mommy sometimes sits on the bench and encourages play from the bench. (laughs) No shame in that game. Yeah. You know, they make cars for a reason and we can use them and it's fine. And she still gets to be outside. And sometimes we just play in the backyard. And you know what? Sunshine is sunshine and it's fine. Sure is. Yeah, but she definitely doesn't mind calling me out for it, though. She's like, (laughs) mommy to dance. Mommy can jump. So whatever she's doing, she wants mommy to do. So she sometimes gets a little frustrated and is like, why aren't you? She likes to like pretend lead an exercise class because they have like this little like movement class at her school. 
And so she's like, mommy, why aren't you doing this thing? Like she's trying to like have me do bear crawls. And I'm like, could we do a different thing? Like maybe a puzzle? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So very humbled, very quickly. (laughs) I understand what's happening in my body, toddler. Right. Yeah. She has no regard for that. But yeah. So if it's anything that parenting has taught me, it's that there's no part of our life that parenting doesn't touch. It will influence and impact the way we do a lot of things. And so that's what we want to talk about today is that connection and that that intersection between who we are as a parent and then who we are in our advocacy work and in our, our work in the movement. So I first want to talk about this idea of like, how does doing the work we do? So we all are here at TCFE. We have a little bit different roles, me being on prevention, Makisha's in our coordinated community response team, Barbara's on our policy team. So we all hold a little bit of a different responsibility and role within our agency, but we're all active, you know, advocates within our movement. So how does this work influence how we parent? Because I don't think it's possible to do this work and not have it influence our parenting. I will say, because I have a little boy I have who's going to grow up to be, you know, a white male and he's going to have all of the privilege that comes with that. And I think in this work, you know, we see more of the negative impact of that privilege here than others might see in their day-to-day, you know, corporate fields or whatever they do in the world. I think this work really can highlight some of the harm that comes from that. So I both feel like a heightened responsibility to raise this like empathetic, consent, knowledgeable, affectionate, in tune child. But I also feel like the pressure of like, if I don't do it right, like I know the harm that could come from it. So I think like the context of this work gives me great tools to help parent him into that child. And it also, you know, gives a great pressure to not sort of contribute to the issues that we see so often. Yeah, that's a heavy pressure to carry, (laughs) right? When you're holding that in the context of the work that we do. And I guess the flip side of that is, you know, having a girl and thinking, oh my gosh, like, how do I adequately prepare her for all the things that we see happen within our work, right? Like, how do I prepare her for the first time that she's in a situation that makes her uncomfortable? Or how do I prepare her for the first time she's told she can't do something because she's a girl? And it's, I guess, that flip side of that pressure of, I need to be the one voice that can undo all of the messaging (laughs) and all of the influence from our society and our world. And that's a lot of pressure to feel. But I think you're right in that we have a little bit of an advantage being a part of this work and this environment where we have access to 
the language and the tools and the resources to be able to talk about that, to even know that you have to be diligent and intentional about those kinds of things. Because I think prior to me being in this field, even though I might have had like some similar parenting techniques or styles, I don't know that I would have integrated that kind of intentionality about this specific topic like I do now. And so I think being around this work just makes me even more mindful of incorporating those kinds of lessons and that kind of language as often as I can with her. And I'm sure, Barbara, it sounds like it's a similar thing that, you know, you kind of lean on what we know and what we have access to, to kind of integrate into our parenting. For sure. Yeah, this is going to sound really naive, but I remember when my oldest daughter was born and I was doing this work and I felt like now we have a deadline, like we have to fix all these problems <laughs> in the next 15 years so that my child can move through a much safer world. And Wait, I so know- that's not going to happen? <laughs> so my four-year-old isn't going to... And- yeah, wait a minute. Don't burst my bubble, Makisha. I'm not there yet. I don't have a teenager. I still have a toddler. Um, I think Eleanor's <laughs> 17, so we might have passed the deadline. <laughs> but what I learned, like, raising to a teenager is that it's kind of like we are doing our work, right? Like we're doing this work here and the way that we're parenting and supporting like the relationships that we have with the children and their own resilience and their own like ability to like critically think about what's going on in the world and talk to us about it. Like, we're giving them tools to navigate a world that we can't control. And I think every parent wants to control the environment their children are in and make it as safe as possible. And we see over and over again, like in our work and in like responding to like the events in the world that our children are navigating really unsafe worlds or unsafe situations in the world. And and it is really scary But it's also really remarkable to watch a child grow and see like how they're learning the skills that they need to like navigate it. So I feel like this may be why we wanted to come back to this conversation because like watching my child grow, both of my children, but especially my teenager about to launch into adulthood, like I feel really hopeful about what they're capable of, even like when I felt fearful or worried about what they have to navigate, right? That's such a beautiful perspective and something I think that can only come from a mom who's had a few more years (laughs) to be in this role because I love the reminder that, and this is something I try to remember, is that I'm not raising a baby. I'm not raising a toddler. I'm raising an adult And I need to stay focused on like the end goal here. And the end goal is, yes, to have a well-adjusted, equipped, confident individual who can navigate the world confidently and know when they need support, know when they can like have a little bit more autonomy and do that as safely as they can with the resources and tools that they have and to foster the kind of relationship and environment at home with them 
that is conducive to that kind of adult. And so, yeah, that's the bigger picture, right? Like, and then the day-to-day, it can kind of get muddled into like, oh my gosh, please just eat something that's not Nutella, you know, and you kind of get caught up in the like minute little things. But yeah, that's the end goal, right? Is to be able to launch them into the world and say, I've done what I can to equip you and I'm here for you whenever you need. That's so beautiful. And I want to add to that too, like hearing Makisha, hearing a parent that's been doing it a while and like having this sort of supportive and inspiring conversation. I think that is indirect impact of our work on our parenting is that like the women and the parents that do this work, I think come into it with more grace and more empathy and the ability to like be more accepting of ourselves, hopefully, but also of each other. And so I feel like being in this work has given me this community of people that are supportive that while we might not be identical parents, we're, I don't have to be fearful of sharing fears or sharing mistakes or asking questions like might be true in other fields. You know, I, I just feel like the, the empathy that people come into this work with has been invaluable because it trickles to one another. And I think you know, we call, or I've seen us called the villageless generation, but I think like in this work with these colleagues, like this has been an invaluable village to me as I've started on this journey of parenting. Oh, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've in a panic messaged one of the moms here and been like, what do I do in this situation? Like what worked for you? What's happening (laughs) in this stage of babyhood or toddlerhood and gotten really great advice and just validation and support, you know, even just, oh gosh, that sucks. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know? And yeah, like really feeling like I have a community of moms who, because we can, inadvertently or intentionally be raising our children on a certain set of values. And I think we probably share a lot of similar values within this group here. And that's super helpful, you know, and like there are different ways to parent, right? And it's not about arguing about who's right and what's the right way. And we're all going to make choices that we're going to find out later our kids hated, right? Or impacted them in some way. But, you know, some parents who value just, you know, obedience overall, right? And that's the most important thing or respect overall, you know, whatever it is. And I find myself challenging that kind of value system a little bit or reimagining what that means in our family. And so, I think it's helpful to have other individuals who I can kind of lean into that and feel like if I'm parenting around you, I don't feel judgment or I don't feel like shame that I'm a bad parent or I'm being too lenient or I'm being too this or I'm not focusing on this enough or, you know, whatever the case. And I feel supported in my parenting and I feel like I can 
lean into the shared knowledge within our group and come back with more ideas and different techniques to support like the values that I'm trying to instill in my kiddos. Yeah. And I think we also see like what's unique to us all being in this work is we can see the long-term impact of some of those more traditional parenting techniques, like the authoritarian, the strict gender roles or gender role separation. And we see that impact on society at large. And so it's like, we can support one another, not just in parenting differently, but in truly like preventing, right? Like preventing another generation from becoming that, like perpetuating the cycle of violence or toxic masculinity or however, all of these different dynamics that we see in the survivors and the families we serve, we get to support each other, like as parents and trying to combat it and in the world trying to, as Makisha said, fix it by the time we have teenagers. So I think another part of like being in this work and it impact our parenting is that like we, we see how these more traditional parenting techniques might sometimes correlate to, you know, these ideas of authoritarianism or strict gender role or gender role separation, this idea of masculinity where you don't cry or show emotion except anger. Like we see the impact of that in the world at large while we do this work. And so it's not just that as colleagues and coworkers, we get to support each other in the world, trying to change those dynamics and prevent violence. We also get to support each other as we try on our own to help this generation sort of break those norms, you know, or as Makisha said earlier, fix the world by the time we have a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. I've definitely had that experience of like, being really supported and kind of talking through the parenting dilemmas that come up when you're trying to parent by a different value system, I think, than what the world expects. And like for me, I definitely always took the long view, like you were talking about, Samantha, and like it's a choice of like you don't want your children to be disruptive in the moment and like impacting everyone around them but like you often have a choice of like I can get you to behave the way I want you to right now or I can like listen to you and we can have a conversation so that we can figure out like how you learn to like adapt in the long term so like for example like eating and you mentioned like Nutella sandwiches like I can expect you to clean your plate or like help you learn to have a healthy relationship with food where you're learning to listen to your body and we're like exploring healthy foods together. Like it's like a choice that you're making of like, what do I need right now in this moment as like your parent versus like, what do I think you need in the long run to learn about food? And like, I've often felt like, bodily autonomy is a really important value to instill in even young children and like setting boundaries, but also when you can respecting their choices about like what they want to wear or what feels comfortable, what doesn't feel comfortable because learning to like listen to your own body is part of like learning to be in relationships with other people who may impact you in in like one way or the other. So I've always thought that like 
I can get the outcome I want right now, or I can help like see this as a learning moment that helps you make decisions in the long run. And I know I've had conversations with other advocate parents who are like, sometimes you just really want your kids to get in the car without negotiating. (laughs) But, But you also know, like you built this relationship with them where you can talk through things. And if they see a red flag out in the world, they know they can talk to you about it. Or if something comes up for them in the way that they're feeling, they can talk to you about it. So it's a trade-off, I think. And it's not always like something that looks intentional, like from the outside, like people may see like, oh, your kids are just out of control, or they get to choose and do whatever they want. I think it's just really important to like, have folks that do understand, like we're setting boundaries, but we're also creating space for our kids to negotiate some of the things that matter to them. Yeah. And Oh my gosh, that's hard. (laughs) Because I think traditionally, and probably maybe some of us, even in this group, weren't necessarily raised with that same idea. (laughs) And so, yeah, and it feels so uncomfortable, right? Like, I vividly remember not too long ago, we were in Target. I was by myself with my toddler. She loves getting in the cart at Target. She thinks it's a tractor and she loves all things farm. So, it's a win-win. We get in the cart. She thinks it's a tractor. It's fun for both of us because I don't have to carry her. <laughs> and for some reason, did not want to get in. And it was it was a whole meltdown scene. And I was so, I was embarrassed and I was uncomfortable. And I was like, there are cameras and I know that they can see me in the back. Like the employees are watching me be a bad mom. And like the people walking past are judging me because she's being loud. And it's so hard to not just like instinctually, like I have to fight against the instinct to like physically grab her and put her and force her in the cart, right? Like that's what I want to do because like you said, Makisha, like it's going to get me what I want in that moment of like, oh my gosh, get in the cart. We have to get groceries. We can't leave because we need the groceries, you know? So that's what I want to do because that's, but then when I sit back and think about it, every single time that I have that instinct to force the situation to be what would be easier for me is 100% about power and control. And I am teaching her what it feels like to be powerless in a situation. And I am teaching her that it's okay for certain people to exert power over you to control the situation because of what they need and want. And what you need and want doesn't matter in that moment. So I frequently have to remind myself, and I don't get it right all the time. Like I'm constantly reminding myself because would it be easier if she just got in the cart (laughs) that she likes anyway? (laughs) Yes. But I have to, I try to do that in a way that's, okay, well, talk to me. Why don't you want to get in the cart? What has happened? Do you need to go to the bathroom? Are you feeling like you need a snack? Are you feeling bored? You know, like finding out what her needs are. And seeing if we can come to like a mutual understanding of what we both need and we can both feel better in that situation. But to the outside looking in, I'm coddling or she's, you know, being bratty, especially because she's a girl, right? She's not being like hyper and, you know, just active and active kid. No, she's being like bratty or she's dramatic. And so I try to remember what I heard one time of somebody giving some parenting advice saying, if you don't let your kids say no to you and you don't let your kids negotiate with you, 
where in the world are they supposed to get the practice to do that with other people in the outside world? And that hit me so hard. And that resonated with me because as a self-proclaimed people pleaser, (laughs) I would have probably benefited from some more practice growing up. And so I try to give her the opportunity within reason, you know, anything excluding hygiene and safety, hygiene and safety, our, and kindness to others are our like non-negotiables. But yeah, like within reason, I try to give her as much autonomy and try to have those conversations with her, even though it's, oh my gosh, it can be a struggle and it can make things take a million times longer than they need to. (laughs) Well, and Samantha, I love that you brought up power and control and those dynamics that we see in this work, because I've also like thought about the things that we see, like, you know, we emphasize survivor choice because they've had their choices removed. We also, you know, in prevention work, talk about respect and expecting it so different than the way I was raised. Like, this idea of choice, like giving your toddler a choice was such a foreign idea. But I do feel like in the world and in our generation of parents, like we are seeing research and impact and why that works and helps give, you know, children some autonomy and some choice. And I think about that, like, if we, if we can't give them some power to choose now, how will they know that they deserve to have choices in life? And so I try to think about that. And then also this idea of respect, which is really challenging, I think, as a parent now, because growing up, you respect by default people older than you, people in positions of power, maybe people of different genders. I was a rule follower. I am a perfectionist. I do as I'm told. And I'm really struggling with my child. Adults have to earn that, too. And I think like trying to instill that, not just with my child, but with my partner, like, because we all grew up in this traditional setting. And I don't know what my ideas yet are about this idea of automatic respect. I think this work makes me challenge it. I think reflecting on how I was parented makes me challenge it and reflecting on the values that get us there. Like, how did we get to a place where we just blindly respect certain people in society and where's the right place to break away from that and how. I think what you're getting at, Barbara, is like this authoritarian idea of respect is connected to fear and power. And it's not connected to like the way when we say relationships are based on respect and when we try to help younger generations like embody respect in their relationships that's not what we're talking about we're not talking about deferential respect that has consequences if you don't like show it so I do think like we have to figure out how to help our children navigate worlds where people expect that from them like their teachers you know people they're encountering in the world may expect that type of authoritarian concept of respect but also learn like what a true meaning of it is and model it with them, which is where it comes back into like, kind of like the hard part of parenting in this lane is that we're not all there yet. We're not on the same page of what, like what it means to practice respect with children. And it's also so nuanced. Like this conversation 
between the three of us is very nuanced about like what is respect and like the different kinds and how you show it and trying to convey that to a three-year-old, like that's really hard to do. I can recall a moment in my parenting where my child was not in school for a while because of COVID and then finally started going to school and did great at her, you know, first class. And then they promoted her up. And once they promote up, there's, you know, there's more rules and there's more structure. And, you know, I started getting some emails from the teacher saying like, hey, kiddo's having some issue with this or is having a hard time adjusting to this. And so one example is like she's climbing on the table, right? And they're expected to sit at the chair and like do their work on the table and not climb on the table. But at home, she's allowed to climb on our table. (laughs) Like it's a strong, sturdy table. We practice like if you're doing it safely and consciously, then sure, right? Like so we have a strong, sturdy table that can hold her weight and she likes to jump from that to the couch. And so she was just unaware of the different sets of rules for the two different environments. So I explained that to her that worked well for that scenario, right? Like, oh, I forgot to tell you, right? You can climb on this table at home, but you can't climb on the table at school. And mommy forgot to tell you that. So let's try to remember that moving forward, right? But then expanding that conversation and saying like, you need to listen to your teacher. But it's like, I don't want to tell her that she has to just always listen to her teacher because she's, in a vulnerable position, both as a young child and also as a girl as she grows and moves through the school system. And I don't know that I want to teach her the lesson, like you were mentioning, Barbara, of like anybody in a position of power is automatically owed your obedience, your agreement, and your, you know, doing whatever they say. That doesn't feel like a safe lesson for me to teach her. And so how do I walk this line with a three-year-old of saying like, okay, well, you can't do the dangerous things you're doing at school. Like you can't jump off the tiny little baby table because it can't hold your weight like the one at home does. And when your teacher says you can't use up all the soap in the soap dispenser, you have to listen to her because you have to share with your other classmates. Like how do I teach her to listen to authority, except like not all the time, (laughs) you know, like that's a really nuanced conversation to have. And I can like, we can understand that there's that difference, but explaining that to littles can be really hard. I think it ties into the value that you were talking about. One of your rule setting factors is safety. And so like, I've had to have a conversation with my youngest about like, behaviors at home can't be in the classroom because your teacher is responsible for the safety of like 25 kids. And I'm just responsible for like making sure you're safe in our home. So like my child, my five-year-old Maddie Jo, like she's very sensory seeking and she loves to be squished and hugged. And when friends are over, she loves to be like just in a pile of friends, like just smushed on the couch. And Her teacher was having a lot of challenges with her, which just pausing for a moment, like just thinking about how our kids were socialized in the last few years. Can we maybe adjust the expectations for like what they're doing in pre-K? 
And I know teachers have a hard job, but like I need my child to get socialized because she didn't have any socialization for a long time. I don't need her to be reading by four or whatever. Like, so like her teacher told us she was doing like puppy piles with kids in the classroom. (laughs) And so I had this conversation with her where I was like, you know how when your friends are over, you just love to like pile on each other on the couch. She was like, yes, I love it so much. (laughs) It's like, well, it's safe to do it at home on the couch because that's soft and we're around, we're like watching you. But you can't do it at school because your teacher has to be responsible for everyone in the classroom being safe and feeling comfortable like in a puppy pile. So she was like, oh, okay. I don't know. She probably still does get a little carried away at school, but like just having that conversation about like, this is okay in the setting and your teacher's worried about like your safety and everyone else's safety. And I think that clues them into like, that's important to listen to. That's important to take into consideration. You know, you mentioning the hugging and the feeling close to friends. I think another like part of this work that impacts my parenting is that idea of like, what does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be like an aware and empathetic and in tune boy? Both my husband and I are really affectionate with our son. And when he cries, he comes to us, I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to cuddle him as long as he'll let me. And in my heart and in this work, I know that that's the way to raise like a boy who's in touch with his feelings, who is open to affection, who is open to asking for help and asking for love. But I'm still torn between like, because we haven't fixed the world yet, how is that world going to treat him? And with, you know, the boomer grandparents, that gets really challenging. And I'm grateful that my husband happens to be an affectionate male. And even that, I don't know how long I can depend on. Like, when are his traditional values from his family going to start impacting how he interacts with our son? That I think is a challenge too. Like I feel supported amongst you, amongst my colleague moms. I feel confident in the affectionate way we interact with our son, but I worry about how the world will interact with him as a result. I think that's where like have watching like a teenager has given me a lot of hope because I think young people are changing like the world too and they're like rejecting a lot of just like the gender binary socialization and when you watch your kids move through school and through like the things that they're involved in you find them like finding their people and connecting with people that can like like have similar values or similar, you know, things that they want to bring into the world. And I think it helps a lot, but like not knowing like what kind of environment your children are going to be navigating as they move into school. It's very scary, I think. And I think we know this from like watching the youth advisory board, like 
there are lots of kids out there that are like shaping the conversations in very different ways than like what we experienced growing up. And it's really exciting, I think. So I just like as scary as it is, there's hope too that in 10 years, it's not all going to be fixed. (laughs) It's still like, it's going to be a different world than it is today. Like the things that we do to like tell our kids it's okay to be different really buoys them. Y'all, I want to say, first of all, this is amazing. I'm glad we're doing this podcast, but also just this conversation generally feels like therapy, feels like community, feels like a village, and I've loved it. That being said, I'm also real pregnant and I have to go to an appointment like, right now. So it has been an honor. I do have to leave a little early, but thank you for this, for this time and space. And I can't wait to hear what y'all have to say after I leave. Real mom life, huh? <laughs> it's the truth. Well, thanks for joining, Barbara. All goes well at your appointment. Thank yeah. you. We'll miss Talk you, to- back. Yes, we'll miss you. Step away and take care of yourself. Yes. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Makisha and I will be finishing up. So Makisha, yeah, I think we just kind of left off on talking about like that gender socialization and how the world reacts or will react or how we fear the world will react to the ways that we are either leaning into or challenging traditional gender norms and gender socialization. And something that comes up for me is, you know, I have a girl, she's you know four years old, and I'm currently pregnant with our second. And it's wild to me. It's absolutely wild to hear the reactions from people, particularly men, particularly men, I think there's probably been some women, but of like almost like condolences to my husband of like, I don't know, like his loss on not having a boy and like, you know, oh man, two girls, that's going to be expensive or dramatic or chaotic or I don't know, fill in the blank of just not as good as, right? Like it's not the optimal, like you haven't, I don't know, like maybe you didn't get the all-star package if you didn't get at least one boy, right? And so it's like this automatic assumption that we're going to, you know, keep trying for a boy. And like, while that may work for some families and some families might really value that, sure, there's something to be said about like seeing yourself and your children and, you know, sure. But let me tell you, my daughter has plenty of qualities from her father. (laughs) And so it's a weird way that we show before a child is even born, how we devalue women and girls in our society. And it's such a weird, because it's like, it's like a blanket reaction from anybody, from somebody that you know, and is your, you know, your personal relationship with like a friend or family member to like a random person in line at the grocery store, who's just asking you, what are you having? You know, and they see that you already have a girl and then they feel the need to just, oh, I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) So yeah, it's like a really weird 
response and reaction and something that you and I have talked about before, Makisha, really just honestly irritates me and it really frustrates me when this happens. And I've been known to push back on that, (laughs) depending on my hormone levels that day (laughs) is how varied the response is. But, you know, something that you said to me the other day was, you know, um, the devaluing of girls and women is like the first step in violence towards women. And I think that's the perfect context to why it affects me so much when I hear that and why I feel so protective when I hear that kind of response, because I know where that leads. And it's the underlying baseline in our society of what keeps rape culture and toxic masculinity and violence against women perpetuated. But as you were talking, like, I know that a lot of times people don't mean any harm but when they're saying those and they're just looking for an easy way to connect to you. And so what they're turning to are like these deeply embedded stereotypes about women and girls, particularly like probably just like young women, teen girls, like how challenging it can be to parent them, like the stereotypes about what dads have to do to protect them And without really thinking, right, because it's like a common stereotype of what what it's like to handle girl emotions, what it's like to raise a girl in our society. And as you were saying it, I was just like connecting forward to like the times that I've sat in battering intervention and prevention groups and heard men who are abusive to their partners devalue women's judgment of their ability to make decisions about what they wear, like how they spend money. Like I always, like, I think of all the groups I sat in economic abuse and economic equality. I always felt the most frustrated because every time I would hear how women are always shopping and women don't know what they're doing with their money. And I was like, like, that's like the extreme of the belief, right? That you believe it so much that you would hurt your partner to control them and to control like their decisions around money and who they spend time with and how they dress and other things. Like we know it's bigger than that, but when you distill it down, it's like these little messages that we are still really comfortable making jokes about and throwing out at strangers just to have a moment of connection with them. And we aren't really unpacking, like, what are the beliefs that lead to us thinking a baby girl is, that's like so exciting to like hold any child that comes into your relationship or or in your life, like just holding that newborn and like projecting decades of drama on them. That's crazy. Yeah. And the fact that there is no attempt at hiding that narrative from my toddler, who's also a girl. So most of the time when these comments are happening, you know, we're there as a family. It's me and my daughter and my husband and you know somebody asks you know like oh what are you having and and then that's the response we're getting and I'm like 
I feel obligated to stand up and say something to that and combat that message because that's something that is directly going into my daughter's makeup of her personhood. And so as her guardian, like, and by guardian, I mean, like, my job is to protect her and her whole self. I can't not say something to that. I can't just laugh along with that because why would I be okay saying that she's less than like, what about me as a parent would be okay with being like, oh yeah, you know what? You're so right. I really wish she wasn't here, (laughs) you know, like, or I really wish she was a boy. She would be so much better. Right. We wouldn't say it like that. And so why do we say it in this like coded way? And I think we do that in a lot of different ways, too. I think this work really highlights like the connection you made to hearing this same kind of messaging in VIP groups. Like it's just, we see it under this magnifying glass of when it goes unchecked, this is what happens. And so it kind of puts us on like high alert, I think, as parents to say, okay, I need to intervene and I need to be that first line of defense against what our society says. Because like you said, we can't control the environment forever. We can't control like the messaging that our kids receive, but we can control whether or not they accept that almost Mm -hmm. like not control it, but we can influence it. So while I may not be able to stop comments about what her body should look like or what her hair should look like or how she should act or whatever, I can hopefully have instilled a set of values in her that guide her to say, this is trash. Like I'm hearing this, but I don't accept this. I'm not going to allow this to integrate into who I am or I do accept this and I am integrating this into my idea of what and who I should be. And I think as parents, we have a big part to play in that. It feels like a huge responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I know like from our perspective and we're really hypervigilant around relationship safety and like sexual safety and well-being. And there are all kinds of ways that messages are like seeping into what girls think about themselves, what boys think about themselves that are affecting like how they relate to their bodies. And like, I think we could spend like a whole episode with other people and experts talking about like, you know, body image and eating disorders and things like that. Because I think all of those messages really get internalized to girls as like, a need to control themselves so they control what they can control about the world. And they show up sometimes in self-harm in different ways. So I think it is like modeling, even if you don't always feel like picking a battle with the person in public that you don't even know, (laughs) just like you can have conversations with your kids afterwards and talk about like, that's not something we really believe about girls. We believe girls could be lots of things and we believe boys can have lots of feelings, like helping them have a lens to interpret things differently, I think makes a difference 
for them as they encounter those um, those messages on their own too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just speaks to the fact that like it never stops, right? Like when we consume media, when we interact with people in our day-to-day life, like we have to kind of not to create a barrier of what can and can't come into contact with our kids, but like teach them the tools to digest that information and filter it through that set of values, like we were talking about earlier, so that when they're out on their own, they have the tools to be able to do that. Because this messaging doesn't stop at elementary school or or high school or, you know, as you know, like you're not going to set your kiddo out into the world and then that messaging stops and all of a sudden, you know, they are like this person like in a vacuum who doesn't receive outside influence. So you've done the work, you've like laid the groundwork throughout their entire 17 years of life so far to be able to recognize those messages and think critically about it and filter it through that set of values and say, wait a minute, does this align with what I've been told this whole time or not? And I think maybe not. So therefore I can disregard or I can choose to, you know, take the bits that I do agree with or that do resonate with me and leave the rest. And I think that's a really important skill that even as adults, like we have to hone sometimes, like it's not something you learn once and you have it forever. Like you have to constantly practice that. I think it's evident in our work. It's really easy to fall back on certain belief patterns if we're not careful. Like you have to be really in intentional about it. And I think that's another another aspect to this like intersection of parenting and our work is like how our parenting influences our work. And it gives us this lens of and a little bit of understanding into like some of our systems and where there might be gaps and where there might be ways to do things better because maybe they're not accessible to everybody. And if you're a parent you know, some of these systems that we work with really closely within our movement might not be as accessible because of your status as a parent. It's really interesting to see the way that both of these parts of our lives have such a huge influence on the other. Yeah, as you were saying, I was just thinking like, you know, some of the ways that I can parent or choose to parent, I might be able to explore them more because of the privilege that I have as a white woman and that that maybe like it's not as safe to encounter public spaces if, if you're a person of color like maybe you are like just the expectations are more harmful yeah and more yeah. harmfully imposed on you so I was just thinking like I really hold a lot of value in this approach to parenting, but I understand that it may not feel safe for everyone in every circumstance to parent the way that I might have the privilege to you, I guess. Yeah. And that's a reality, right? Like I have to consider sometimes like what, I think especially as my kids get older, um, like what, public perception might be in that moment of, you know, my children of color. And that's a reality of the world that we live in. And also, I think 
if we think about our work, what are some of the restrictions that we as advocates or people who have like family violence programs and shelters and things like that, what are the restrictions that we're putting on parents who are survivors of how they parent their kids and removing that choice and removing that autonomy as a parent to be able to parent in the way that they see fit because of rules and because of, you know, policy and things like that. And so I think when you have people in those positions who are parents and have a little bit of perspective, like it can definitely have an impact on how those things are put into practice and the way that survivors who engage in our systems move through these systems and kinds of access that they do or don't have because of that perspective that we can bring. Yeah. And I think there are lots of ways that people care for children in their lives. And like parenting is like one of the primary roles in what we're talking about today. But I know for me, like before you're a parent, you believe like you will parent X way or you have these things. I'll never do this or I'll always do this. And then when you're a parent, like it goes back to those humbling moments we talked about at the beginning, like every day, like you're challenged to like examine those values you held really tightly or those beliefs. I don't know if they're values or just like ideals of what a parent should do. Because in practice, like parents are juggling all kinds of priorities all the time. So I do think it helps give you a lens of more understanding. And we also have to examine like when our own biases can be showing up and we're imposing like our values on people that we're um, serving in our programs or working with in our programs. Because I do think like I have two very different kids and I thought I knew what I was doing with the first one because they were a lot like me and we just like worked together really well. And then everything that I thought I knew didn't work with the second one. It's very unfair because (laughs) I really thought I had cracked the code. You can tell why I've needed so much tumbling um, over (laughs) this I really thought I knew what I was doing most of the time, not all the time. We definitely <laughs> have periods that were challenging, but like just, you know, how you work with your kids. One kid's personality doesn't necessarily have the same results with another kid, with a second kid who has their own personality. Yeah. And just even that understanding and knowledge translates so well into like policy creation and shelter life, right? Because just knowing as a parent that what works for one is not going to work for the other. Yeah, that's a, that's like really valuable information to have <laughs> and a really valuable lesson to have learned. And I'm anxiously awaiting to see how this next one <laughs> turns out and <laughs> to see how everything I learned may fly out the window, (laughs) but hey, maybe I can take a couple of pieces and it'll still work. (laughs) Yeah. I was really lucky to be like a mom's group, a group of just local moms who all had babies like the same year. And so we had like 
a few years where we were really close knit and like had get togethers and things like that. And one of <laughs> there are two takeaways that I had from that. But one was when we were like sharing challenges and getting feedback, like over our listserv, people would sign, like offer their opinion and then they would sign it YMMV, your mileage may vary. (laughs) (laughs) I love (laughs) that. Yes. I feel like (laughs) any parenting information anywhere should include. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you just got to take it with a grain of salt because it might have worked. And it's the same thing with like baby gadgets. You know, I'm in that mode of like, oh gosh, like I'm going to have a baby again. Like, what are the things you need again? And even just thinking on the fact that, okay, I could just get some of the same things that I had for my first. And then knowing that it could all be for naught because <laughs> this new one might be like, um, I actually hate that. <laughs> So, and it just goes back to this whole idea of autonomy and we're all individual people as adults and why would it be any different for children and needing to like treat children with respect to their individuality and their value as like an individual human. And I think sometimes we forget that as a society, like we forget that kids are humans who are deserving of respect and consideration and grace and all the things, all the lovely things that we want for ourselves that we should also give to them. So yeah, (laughs) but Makisha, this has been, and Barbara, if you're listening later, Barbara, (laughs) this has been such a great conversation and such a celebration, I think, of motherhood and the wonderful ways in which we try to navigate the world and do all the things (laughs) as moms do. I want to close this out by asking, what are your hopes and dreams for kiddos and the world that they live in? You know, not a big (laughs) question at all. (laughs) Yeah, so many, but I think like when it comes to parenting, what I hope is that I like foster a relationship with my kids where we stay connected through the hard things that they experience. Because I think that the the connection is what they need the most. That's like kind of my number one priority in my parenting. So when I have a challenging situation, I try to stop and think like, how can I address this and like model respect for them and also like connect it to like, this is what I hope you'll be able to like take with you. You know, I'm still that naive person that I hope (laughs) our children, not just my children, but every child I see like riding down the street on their bike and looking free and joyous could always experience a world where it's safe and free from violence and free from like the forces that are trying to like make them fit into a box. I think short of that, we just have to continue to like help them not only have healthy relationships outside of the family, but 
have strong relationships where they feel safe trusting us with hard things too. Yeah, all of that. (laughs) I think for me, it kind of boils down to like one word of just safety. But when I say that, I mean, yes, of course, physical safety, but emotional safety and relational safety. And like you were saying, like safety in the sense that her spark and individuality and that eagerness and like zest for life and for learning and creativity and like that that stays safe in like our capitalistic (laughs) society and that you know she feels safe in her identity and that she feels safe in who she is and who she is within our family and her relationship to us her relationship with others yeah and I think just feeling comfortable and confident in who she is and moving through the world with that sort of confidence and grace that comes with that feeling of security and safety. So, you know, no big deal. Just (laughs) if we can just, you know, fix the world and make all that happen, we've got it, right, Makisha? (laughs) Definitely. Like, an amazing thing to watch these little people unfold and learn who they are as much as we sh- we work to like shape them like we also just get to like respect who they are as individuals and watch them do things that we never thought possible <laughs> like things that would scare me sometimes i can see my kid do it and i'm like whoa that's crazy I have a quote that I took away from a recent parenting class. This is by Carl Rogers. And it says, people are just as wonderful as sunsets if you let them be. When I look at a sunset, I don't find myself saying, soften the orange a bit on the right-hand corner. I don't try to control a sunset. I just watch with awe as it unfolds. Ugh. Yeah, just watching our children grow is like, there's so many little awestruck moments that are very exciting and special and fun and joyous. And sometimes I think like our fear and our hypervigilance (laughs) (laughs) kind of like overshadow those moments of awe. But if we can take a breath and just like, bear witness to it to who they are sometimes it's like really helps us reconnect to like our role as their parent and I think there's so many opportunities for us to bring it into our work to end domestic violence and so I have really enjoyed this conversation thank you Samantha and Barbara Uh, now I gotta go pick her up from school early because I just want to cuddle with her (laughs) I'm too emotional for this right now (laughs) that was a beautiful quote but no thank you both for this conversation it's been so lovely and happy Mother's Day to you both I hope that you are able to do whatever it is you want to do to celebrate because you deserve you both deserve it so much may we all have all of the rest and recuperation and just the right amount of like family time (laughs) and kid time.
just the right amount, not too much, not too little, you know? (laughs) And to everybody listening, if you're a mom, happy Mother's Day. And we will see you all next month for our next episode. Thanks for tuning in. 